Hey podcast listeners, Kyle here. I am the lead pastor at the Lakes Church, and I'd love to invite you to prayerfully consider giving to our first ever Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year's end, and we're raising funds toward two particular initiatives, to establish security and to invest in the future. Every cent given will be allocated toward these initiatives, and quite simply, we do not need or want generosity from you. We want it for you. That is, we want to become the type of people for whom generosity is the overflow of joy and gratitude. And so to that end, we invite you to prayerfully consider partnering with us. You can find all the information you need at mylakes.church slash give. Well, today we continue in our series in Advent. And as you might see, that this is a season that uh, can often be littered with the unexpected and waiting. Um, and as we enter in, I have a, a bit of a story I want to share with you. It's not an original story, which is not a surprise, but a story nevertheless. And the story goes like this, that there was a farmer who experienced this unprecedented yield. They had one of those years where the rain was right, the sun was right, the climate was impeccable. And so they had a harvest that overflowed, and it overflowed all of the silos and the barns and the storehouses to the point uh, that this, this farmer said, okay, I, I think I have hit the jackpot harvest. All of the markers are such that I can now, well, now I can rest easy. It's kind of that relaxation moment, the, ah, here we go. So the farmer, doing what, what they could in order to keep all of this harvest because the silos, the storehouses, and the barns couldn't contain it. They tore them all down. Notice the, the waste there. But then they said, I'm, I'm going to build even bigger storehouses to store all this, and then I will be set. Just as the project wrapped up, as it would happen, the living God showed up to this farmer, you know, as he does, and said, well, you know, it's so curious because... Tonight is the night, not that you will retire from your profession, but from your very life. So what good are your storehouses now? If this sounds familiar, it's because it's a story that you might know from Jesus, from Luke chapter 12, in fact. It's a story that the author and pastor Eugene Peterson calls the greedy farmer. And you see, Jesus, he regularly trafficked in stories like these. These were known as parables. And a parable is a simple thing. It's kind of like a fable, but a parable simply means to set alongside. It's where you tuck a truth into plain obscurity. You just tuck that truth in, and then you find out, really, how, how do I figure this thing out? A parable invites you to seek out the truth. And in the case of Luke 12, uh, Eugene Peterson, with his little paraphrase of this parable, he helps us to get to that truth a little more readily. I like how he translates the end of it. He says this, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. In other words, a, a crowded life often obstructs God. This is more or less what we're going to be talking about today as we enter into the second week of Advent. The first week, we kind of dialed in on the light that is breaking in, this single 
candle of hope, hope breaking into the darkness. The light has dawned, that whole theme. But now we, we shift. We, we shift, and I start with this parable in part because this is the beauty of parables. They bring us some of life's most challenging and essential realities, and they do so with ease, but they don't release their truth so easily. We get to, not we have to, but we get to wrestle with them. In fact, this is what I find so beautiful about the scriptures is that time and time again, you can return, whether you are 12, 20, or 80, like, and you can come to the same text and go, how did I not see that? Well, in in part because your circumstances and everything in your life has changed, but you have come to this unchanging reality who is God, and he meets you in that moment. You get to wrestle with these. Unfortunately, as a church community who's seeking to practice the way of Jesus, we want to make a regular rhythm of wrestling with God's word. And, and what I love about that image of wrestling is like it's rooted way back, you know, back in the, the first testament. And you see this one guy, Jacob, who would be called Israel, he's wrestling with God and he's got that bum hip afterwards, but he gets the blessing. And so I, I, why not? Why not wrestle with the text? Instead of leaving with confusion, let us confront all of this and bring all of our energy to wrestle with it. Uh, Last week, we started in on this kind of Advent wrestling, which is a weird way to maybe frame Advent because it's a whole season of waiting and anticipation. But that's what it feels like in my heart. When I'm waiting for something to break in, it just feels like I'm longing and it's pressing in on me. When will it come? When will it come? And so these, this week, we continue in that vein. Well, last Sunday, we, we noticed that there was a voice calling in the wilderness, beckoning us, calling us to behold the light, the light of the world. And it was this solitary candle of hope that we then tied into. And so John there, John the Baptist, is this voice calling in the wilderness, and he makes no claim to be the hope. Instead, he's just the one who's pointing the way to the hope. He's the one sent to prepare the way, whose life and ministry says, hey, cosmic glory, it has touched down and has grounded himself in reality. And he's now close at hand. And today, hope draws us toward peace, which is the lighting of the second Advent candle. But the progression from hope to peace is no slight thing. It's not just that as the holidays progress, they get lovelier and lovelier. In fact, as you get closer to family, you realize, oh no, they get hairier and nastier, and then I have to sometimes act like I'm enjoying these people, but really I don't, and thank the Lord this happens one time a year. From, I guess from the lack of laughter, that was a bit too on the nose. Okay, we'll move on. But you see, as we, as we think about this progress from hope to peace, I just want to consider the start of our teaching text. John, he's pulling no punches. He starts out, and you might hear it in a sweet voice, you brood of vipers, the axe is at the root, you're going to be thrown into the fire, Merry Christmas. This is an odd progression toward peace. If this feels like a bit of a misplaced text for Advent, I understand the misgivings, but just stay with me, because I want you to recall, John the Baptist is more than just a random voice calling in the wilderness. John the Baptist is a Hebrew prophet. He's one who has taken up not just God's mantle and call and strange call to live set apart. No, don't. John is a man who is a Hebrew man first who's speaking in the prophetic tradition, and then he's received according to that tradition. 
We actually get a sense of this because even though John calls the crowd who comes out to him a brood of vipers, they don't re- respond by canceling John. No, they actually respond with a question. Hear this question in verse 10. What should we do then? What a strange question to respond. What should we do? If somebody insults you, it's an odd thing to answer back. What sh- okay, so what should I do about that? But the crowds are tuned in to who John is and how he is speaking. And so with willing hearts, hearts willing to turn afresh to God, remember baptism, a baptism of repentance, that's what John offers. These people come to to turn to God afresh. And so this is not a question posed by offended people, people who feel pressed against the ropes or insecure. This is, in other words, this is not like a conversation with a prophet and fragile millennials. This is a question among open-hearted people who want and are eager to seek God. And, and I would just imagine that these people, when they hear John, they, they see on his life and they hear on his lips, Isaiah 40 and Malachi 4, the one, the one who would come and turn the hearts of God's people back toward him. This is the hope that people sat with. See, the curious thing about Advent is it, is it begs the question, like, what are we hoping for? And then we get to plumb the depths of that question for week after week. John invites us to this, like, what do you hope for? Well, the people then and there, they were hoping for release from military oppression under the Roman occupation. They they were hoping for refreshment, to be on their ancestral lands without having to give away all of their work to those who now owned it. They were hoping for, well, the Messiah, the one who would come and set all wrong things right. And so for those who have ears to hear, Luke, he's, he's dropping a bit of a bomb with this question. What, what then should we do? And the reason Luke is dropping a bit of a bomb is because the people who are hearing Luke's gospel, his biography of Jesus' life and ministry, they are those who are trying to cling to their faith. Remember, the, the gospels are not security camera footage. That is, the Gospels aren't, aren't somebody with a GoPro following Jesus around, and then people just, you know, transcribe all those things. No, this is Luke, who has this two-part series that it didn't air on Netflix. This was like back in the day. So it's this two-part series, Luke and Acts. And in Luke Acts, he then is going to say, this is the Acts. These are the Acts of the Apostles empowered by the Spirit. But before then, this is Jesus This is his life and ministry and witness. And so people would come not just to this text, but to the reality of God in their midst through a particular story and a time and a place. And when Luke would speak, he he would do so with certain reminders and he would drop these little nuggets in that would be like this crumb, a trail of crumbs that would allow you to get to a new reality whose name is Jesus. And this question is one of those. It is a bomb that Luke drops across Luke and Acts. What should we do then? In Luke 3, we we see this happening in the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers ask separately, what should we do? But we see it in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God comes at at, at Pentecost and fills the room and the people, like people are looking in and they're like, oh, they're drunk, but it's only nine in the morning. And then Peter with his words dripping with the Spirit of the living God is preaching and people turn and they say, what should we do then? 
Uh, Later on in the same corpus, in Acts, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas functionally pray their prison doors open, the jailer there in Philippi asks, what should I do? In other words, there is a type of response that comes when God is in your midst. Luke wants to tune our attention to this. When God shows up, it requires a response. John the Baptist is saying, the light has come, he is breaking in, in fact, he is here now, and the crowds are like, hold on a second, what what, what should we do? And this is how John the Baptist calls the people. He calls the people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and he does so with three simple things, simplicity, generosity, and contentment, to the plentiful, simplicity, to the tax collectors, generosity, and to the soldiers, contentment. It's a lot to cover for today, so I won't. Uh, Next week, we'll come back to the same teaching text and look at generosity and contentment. But for today, with the remainder of our time, I just want to explore with you this first call of John, a call to simplicity. And so if you would, go back with me to Luke, not John, Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be picking up in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over there. And of course, it'll be up on the screen as well. But Luke chapter 3, verse 11, this is what we read. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. I I, uh, heard a teaching on this passage a while back. And pastors try and make jokes, and sometimes they're funny, and sometimes they're not. And this was a case where it was not. Um, but I thought it was funny irony. Um, so he said, oh, this is, you know, sometimes the text can really strain the imagination. And you see this word here, this word for shirts. It's this really complex Greek word, and, you know, it, it actually just means shirts. And you hear nothing. It's like crickets. And he goes on in the passage, and he says, this food, see, again, this passage is quite complex. This, this word for food here, it actually, it's a dramos, and it, it's this word, okay, okay, um, it just means food. And again, crickets. But somehow, I'm listening, and I'm laughing, and so I thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think this is indeed fascinating, fascinating, not because of how straightforward it is, but because of John's opening rebuke. How do you get from brood of vipers to this? Well, it hangs on this. The hinge of this passage, in my opinion, is this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you might be wondering, gosh, why is John the Baptist so harsh here? Well, I would imagine, and this is just conjecture, I would imagine that John knows that the waters of baptism can easily become a virtue signal. That is, it can easily become just an external sign that has more bark than bite, more form than substance. That is, baptism, this external washing that says a new reality is coming to bear, it can easily just become a marker, like a sign in your yard or a flag in your social media bio. It can say a lot but really not mean anything in the end. And so John comes and he reminds these folks that baptism is not in and of itself virtuous. Baptism is just a symbol. The thing that you want is the substance. You want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is just changing your mind about the way things are. You've probably heard it said it's just turning around. But then John says, don't just turn around. Actually, keep in step. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And the practice of bearing fruit for the crowds is simplicity. If you have more than you need, share it. It's a curious thing that John the Baptist thinks about their closets and their pantries with them. If you have more than you need, release it. If, if there are those who are shivering overnight because they have no clothes and you have extra clothes, release them. If you see people who are like plagued by pangs of hunger, but you have excess in your pantry that you don't even know where to put your yams, like release it. That is good fruit. It's fruit in keeping with repentance. Simplicity is in fact that simple. This is how you prepare yourself to behold the light. Because the light is breaking in, but we can so easily, so readily, and we are so good at it, we can obstruct the light with all of our stuff. This Advent season, John is here to say to you and me, cut back any obstruction that blocks the light. Even if those obstructions are your own possessions. Because as we first noted, a crowded life often obstructs God. And this is not a fringe teaching from John the Baptist. He was a weird guy, you know, he's out in the wilderness eating bugs and stuff. But um, I'm not asking us to go in the wilderness and eat bugs unless you're like on some sort of survival trip and then that's cool, I guess. But this is straight down the middle. Remember that little parable we started with? the greedy farmer from Luke chapter 12. That's Jesus himself. But right before that, Jesus has this striking encounter with another crowd. In fact, if you want, you can turn there with me. This is Luke chapter 12. And uh, I'm going to pick up right in, let's say, verse 13. Jesus has this to say. Someone in the, in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, excuse me. Uh, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then this line from Jesus. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Some translators will render that word for greed in verse 15, avarice or covetousness. Avarice is this, like, this idea that you need to hoard it up. You need to clamp those things to yourself. It's almost insatiable. Covetousness, we, we know this one. It's like, oh, I see that thing and I want it. I often experience this as I'm driving around and I'm near, if I want to go closer to the lakeshore, I will then see out of one of these neighborhoods, uh, what are they, like the land rover, range, one of the rovers, and I'll see it come out and it, they'll have it like with the, I don't know, whatever the thing is that makes it so you can drive in the water. I know all these, te- I'm mechanical. Um, and they have maybe just a slight lift kit on it and something, right? I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I don't know if that's like just because um, the propaganda has got me or if I watched The Crown enough and I was like, well, if the queen does it, then I can do it. And then it's just, I see it and I'm like, oh, I could probably go on the dunes. And then I'm just driving and I'm, I'm literally going, this, is, this happened yesterday. Me and Griffin are just going to Lake Harbor Park and we're just gonna walk out to Lake Michigan. I see this car pull out and I'm like, this, in 30 seconds, this happens. That's called covetousness. <laughs> Watch out. Be on your guard. 
See, the thought is that Jesus is warning the, warning the crowds here and that that warning covers more than money. It actually gets to the root of that. It's the strong desire to acquire more and more possessions or experiences. In life, at least the type of life that John the Baptist calls the crowds to await and the life that Jesus himself is holding out as readily available in his name, that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I hope we might be able to agree that for some of us, possessions can at times, with varying degrees of intensity, distract us from the things that matter most in life. Case in point, ego. You know, these are the things where you can uh, mow your lawn, blow your lawn clippings away, and push a snowblower with just one battery. These things. Well, when your five-year-old picks them up and wants to do like you're doing, and then you realize, oh, he doesn't think about the longevity of said tool. He just thinks about how funny it is that when he goes and he shoves it into the dirt, the dirt flies up. Oh, life does not exist in an abundance of possessions, but somehow in those moments, the possession rises in value over and against the son who holds said possession that is replaceable. It's so curious how this stuff happens. Sometimes, for some of us, these things can distract us from what matter most. John will kind of get at it like this. He'll say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn toward the light and keep going that way. And anything that blocks the light, you cut that off. So let me just ask you, if I may, what crowds out your vision of the good life as defined by Jesus? What divides your attention or keeps you from beholding the light of life? And keep these questions up here for a moment. What crowds out your vision? The car pulling out of the parking lot? What divides your attention or keeps you from beholding the light of life? I'm guessing for each and every one of us, it's different, even though there might be overlap. See, as we move toward the Christ event on Christmas, and we experience this um, ever-increasing call to, to joy and vitality, and spark, the more and more Christmas lights are there, and you begin to notice them, I just would wonder, are, are those obstructions or are those lights that are complementary to the true light? John and Jesus alike seem to be saying something like, cut back any obstruction that blocks the life now. Don't wait any longer. Or let me put it to you this way. Embrace simplicity so you might see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Embrace simplicity so you might see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm of the mind that we don't have to wait to get to heaven to experience the goodness of the Lord. But the call, the, really the witness of the Jewish and Christian scriptures is that God, through Christ, has brought heaven to bear on earth. And though it is not fully here, we get to taste. It's like heaven has come to kiss the ground that we walk on and the people who reflect his glory out into the world. By the way, that's what the story is all about. As a community, we say, on the lakeshore where? As it is in heaven. So what might obstruct our view? What crowds out our view? 
You see, we're the type of creatures who have a limited amount of real estate in our hearts. Just, it's, there's nothing wrong about this. We just only have so much that we can contain. We have a limited amount of real estate in our hearts. And Jesus is the type of God who wants to take up every square inch so that upon every square inch, he can sow seeds of love, joy, and peace. That is the type of God we come to in Christ. And so again, what crowds out your vision of the good life? What divides your attention? It is worthwhile, especially in this season, to cut that off. Unless you think that I'm like aiming at some sort of shame tactic to release more goods for the church or something, I'm not. If you would, just uh, track forward with me in Luke's gospel. Go with me to Luke chapter 18. Thematically, we're on the same role. We're looking at simplicity and what it would look like to embrace it so we might see the glory of the Lord in the land of the living. When you get to Luke chapter 18, scroll on down or find your way with your eyeballs to verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And just stop right there for a moment. It's a pretty well-known story, but I just want to take a quick little note. The leader here is not asking Jesus how to get up to heaven. That has far more to do with Plato than it does the Bible and this idea that our disembodied state is better than our actual bodies. So just put a pin in that because in the Bible, the eternal life that's in question here, it's, it's certainly about the quantity that is like how long, but it's mostly about the quality. It is about the type of life that is worth living here and now, the abundant life. What is, it, what is the good life here and now, we could say. So you could translate it, good teacher, what must I do to live the good life here and now? And what makes this such a striking question is the questioner. Because to be rich... To be a ruler in Jesus' day is thought to be the blessed one. So here you have one who, culturally speaking, is blessed, coming to Jesus, this kind of renegade rabbi, and asking, what is the good life? So curious. Listen to Jesus' response in verse 20. You've got to love Jesus. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your own father and mother. And as the exchange continued, it seemed as though the ruler was not really impressed. <laughs> you must go, oh, why? Why isn't the ruler impressed? Well, according to him, he's kept all these from his youth. But it gets interesting because like in Jesus' parables, Jesus will say more by saying less. If you noticed, Jesus has left out some of the commandments. These are the big ten, the ten words, the ten commandments. Jesus left some of them out. And really, it's the first half. The first half of the ten commandments have to do with your relationship with God, and then the second half have to do with your relationship with neighbor, because believe it or not, how you orient your life toward God impacts and directly relates to how you move toward your neighbor. So, Let's just do a little trivia here. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot, but do you remember, don't say aloud, what the first four might be? You got it in your mind? Okay, going back to your Awana days, Garrett. There you go. Have no other gods before me. Make no idols. Do not carry the reputation of God shamefully. In other words, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Jesus leaves these out, and one wonders if he does so intentionally. I think he does. 
See, to the watching world, this ruler leads the blessed and virtuous life, but perhaps there is something obstructing the light of life, the true life, the abundant life that he himself was just asking about. And so we got to wonder, well, what's that thing? Well, go with me to verse 22 and hear Jesus. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This is not a universal command to everybody in the room. To some, it might be. And to be sure, Jesus is not talking about some lofty pie-in-the-sky cosmic inheritance. It's part of it, but he's talking about cosmic glory grounded in reality. He's talking about following Jesus here and now. He's talking about the abundance of life available in Jesus's name. Are you with me? Like, this is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, and it'll cost you something. Now, we could, we could look at this, and we could experience it harshly, We could experience it negatively. We could experience it as lost and a cost that we're not willing to bear. Or if you'll let an Enneagram 7 reframe this for you, you can think about this as simplicity. This perhaps could just be the stuff that's obstructing him from the light of life. You see, we actually get a whole sense of why this is such a hard burden to bear in verse 23. Read this with me. When he, that is the ruler, heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Or more precisely, the ESV renders that he went away sad because he had many possessions. But life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, says Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus then says this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is always a favorite place for a preacher to camp out because you know, you got to love talking about money and how hard it is for the rich to enter. So I just want to pause here. I don't know, by the way, that was sarcasm and me feeling uncomfortable. I don't know where you find yourself in the flurry of Jesus's words about money and possessions and that life does not consist in abundance of possessions. I, 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 we don't know each other well enough yet. I don't know if you feel defensive. I don't know if you feel convicted. I don't know if you feel quite at ease because you've embraced simplicity already. All I know is that for the majority of my discipleship to Jesus, I did not think any of these words had to do with me. And so I just kept on living, almost ignoring these words, until I heard this New Testament scholar, Tim Gombas, talk about this passage and then ask this simple question, who's the rich? Do you ever wonder that? Who is the rich? Well, according to some recent data that you can find on any simple Google search, if your income exceeds $25,000 a year, then you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. If you double that number and you earn more than $50,000 a year, you are now in the top 1%. And now, you may not feel that, um, but according to the global populace of 8 plus billion folk... (laughs) you are in the top 1%. If you have a college education, if you're fortunate enough to say that, you stand among 7% of the global population. Now, 
we could go on and we could get into some of the nitty-gritty of data like this. We could talk about the billion-plus people who live on a dollar a day or the two billion, that is one in four, who still do not have access to clean drinking water for infrastructure or war or a combination of both of those things. But that would just, I don't know, give us more data points to the same end. And I want to be abundantly clear. This is, a, is not about wealth or poverty. This is about the real estate of the human heart because we only have a limited amount And Jesus wants to take up residence in all of our lives. See, what I know to be true, and you have to to assess this data and map it onto your own life for yourself, but what I know to be true is that right now I own a home with running water. I have a fridge full of food. Not just a matter of like, what am I going to eat today? But I get to choose what I will eat I have a yard that is spacious enough for my boys to run around. I have two cars, which is ridiculous. I have a college education. I I went and spent $5 on a pour-over coffee the other day. I mean, my goodness sakes, I, I know, I know that even in the worst of scenarios, if we had no money and no job, that family members would take our whole family in and ask no questions and give no time stamp on how long we could stay because I know it and they've done it before. I don't know where you see yourself in the flurry of Jesus' words. I don't know if you feel defensive or convicted or at ease. But when I survey the data and I map it onto my life, I can come to no other conclusion than I am the rich. I am the rich young ruler. What must we do? What should we do then? Because... Jesus is saying that life does not exist in an abundance of possessions. So where does life exist? How can I find it? Well, if you were to sum up the whole of this, Jesus is in John's words, you could find one word to map it out, simplicity. And so to bring this all together and bring our teaching to a close, I just want to turn our attention towards simplicity. This is what the author and teacher John Mark Comer would simply say as an invitation to simple living. And so let me start by saying what simplicity is not. Simplicity is not design. That is, simplicity is not an aesthetic, the way things look, or some sort of design template that you can find on Pinterest and then put into your home. It can complement design and aesthetics, but it cannot be reduced to another fashionable trend. Likewise, simplicity is not organizing. Um, When Marie Kondo took your sock drawer by storm, if you remember that, she was not calling you to like cut off any obstruction that blocks your view from the incoming and in-breaking light of the God, of of, like the King of Kings. No, um, she was talking about organizing, but simplicity is not organizing. And in fact, if you pay attention to most organizing tips, they're giving you hacks and techniques to fit more stuff into your already confined space. So simplicity is not design. Simplicity is not organization. So what is it? Well, according to the spiritual director, Jan Johnson, in her book, Abundant Simplicity, she has this to say, and she says it better. So let us just take this from her. Simplicity is not a discipline itself, but a way of being. That is, it's something that you practice that begins to leach out into the rest of your life. It is letting go of things others consider normal. 
It is an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and God's kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. We practice simplicity when we intentionally arrange our life around God and what he is doing in us and in this world and let the rest drop off. So what is obstructing your vision? What divides your attention? See, the beauty of simplicity is that anybody can practice it. I mean, simplicity is not just for like the bougie, white, upper middle class. Simplicity is also not just what those call life if you are poor. And that's not, that's not to be harsh or insensitive. It's, it's just that simplicity is a way of being. It's a way of orienting ourselves in the world so that we can get to Jesus and nothing stands in our way. And I just have to say that when this came to my mind a number of years back, uh, I'm kind of a all or nothing kind of fella and so I and to a fault so I went and I got all of my clothes and I dumped them in a big pile as per the like the technique that was offered and then started going through and you make these four piles and it's like okay this is going to get recycled or thrown away this is going to get donated I'm going to keep this around and then this is I don't know what to do with it and of all the piles the I don't know what to do with it was the almost as big as what I started with because I had all these attachments. It's like, well, what if they show up? Like, what, my mom gave me that sweater, and I don't know what she's going to say. If she shows up, I probably have to wear the sweater. And I had all these, like, random thoughts that were associated with it. And what you do is you just put them in a bucket, and you put them away for a while. And it's not as though those attachments dropped off. It was just, I was like, oh, my gosh, those are the things that were obstructing my view. And this might sound ridiculous to think about simplicity in the way of Jesus and Advent, but if, if we're here awaiting awaiting King Jesus. And you think of all the stuff that distracts us. It just begs the question, like, am I willing to cut those things off to get to Jesus? For the rich ruler, the, the call to abundance was actually to give away the possessions so he could gain eternal life. So we just have to wonder, like, well, what is it for us? Well, what is it that God is inviting you to let drop off so that you might be more free to see him clearly. I can think of no better season, a season man, like marked by rampant and unchecked consumerism to shake your fist at the man <laughs> and to just simply say like, I will not be captured by that because my heart, my heart has been captured by King Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, don't give gifts, don't receive gifts, but just, just soberly account for, do I need this? Do you have an extra shirt? Give it away. Is your, is your pantry full? Give it away. To those with many, John the Baptist invites, invites us to simplicity. As I account for it, I am the one with plenty, and I'm guessing some of you might be as well. But this is all invitation to the question, what should we do then? And my encouragement would be this to embrace simplicity so that you might see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. To embrace simplicity is in some sense to get your arms around the, the God who is moving toward us right here and now. To mark this as a community week in and week out, we come to the bread and the cup. And I just want you to take note of this is 
as the ushers begin to pass the elements, um, there's nothing audacious about this meal that's going to come to you. In fact, it's downright simple, pun intended. It is bread broken. It is blood poured out, the covenant of new forgiveness in the name, or the new covenant of forgiveness in Jesus' name. And I think, you know, if I can be honest, week in and week out, I'm, I'm like, oh, Lord, like, are there words that will kind of rend the heavens and you'll pour out your spirit? Can we kind of curate a space, build a world with words that people can step into and encounter your presence? And the impression I get this morning is like, nope. <laughs> I, I think it is that simple question, like, what stands in the way? And so I would just invite you to consider that as you take the bread and the cup, just humbly, with no, like, suspend judgment and ask Jesus, well, what is it that stands? What obstructs my view of you? And then I just invite you to, to like, resolve in your heart to release that to him. And then take steps toward that end. Next week, we will talk with more definition around that. There'll be some complimentary resources that show up on social media. But with you and the Lord in these next moments, I just invite you Ask Jesus, what obstructs my view? And would you give me the strength to cut it off? So let me pray for us and we'll hold some silence to take the bread and the cup. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we honor you. We thank you that because you are with us, we can stand in confidence. We thank you that life does not indeed exist in an abundance of possessions, but life is a place of love and joy and peace in your name. So help us, help us by your spirit to hear from you and respond with joy. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast this week. As we continue in our Advent series, I want to draw your attention to something beyond a podcast. That is uh, an in-person gathering. If you have been here for a little while and you've been testing the waters online, we invite you to come join us at 1030 on Sunday mornings. If you want something that's maybe a little less pressure on Wednesday, December 20th, starting at 7.30, we're going to have a Lessons in Carol service where we gather together in the name of Jesus to remember the story from creation to fall to redemption and consummation. We invite you to come, to join with us, to sing, to exalt the name of Jesus. And beyond that, at the year's end, we're going to have a time of prayer and worship together for the lakeshore. And so if you want to take your next step here at the lakes, I invite you to those two things. Either way, honored that you're here with us, and Lord bless you and keep you.